If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Bonus Break. I'm Dolph Goldenberg, your host, and as you already know, the bonus break is a short solo episode that you can listen to pretty much while taking a coffee break or a tea break and walk away with useful information for your nonprofit. And today, I want to have a conversation with you about the minimum wage in the nonprofit sector, and not just in the sector, but quite frankly, in your organization as well. Over my nearly three decades in the sector, I have met countless individuals who have experienced extreme hardship because of the low pay that so many nonprofits offer. And I'll share with you, as I think back, a few people really stand out. I think I'm always going to remember a nonprofit receptionist who could not afford an airline ticket to see her dying mother. I also think about a program manager who moved her family of five into an extended stay hotel simply because she could not afford rent on an apartment based on what she was making. And there's also a case manager that I think about who was never paid enough to build a rainy day fund. And this case manager, their salary was funded by a government grant. When the grant went away, he got laid off. And guess what? Unemployment was not enough to cover his rent. And he actually became homeless shortly after being laid off. And I've got to share with you that stories like this are all too common in the nonprofit world. I have personally met people working at nonprofits who have had to do things like seek payday loans at predatory interest rates, had to live in low-end extended-stay hotels, and yes, I've even known a couple of people who have become homeless while working at a nonprofit organization. And let me just say that this must stop. And let me also say that, frankly, As a leader and former executive in the sector, I'm guilty of this as well. If I could go back in time 
and change just one thing across the arc of my career, it would, without a doubt, be to pay a higher wage to the bottom quarter of the workforce. As a leader and executive myself, you know, I have justified a salary by saying it's a competitive salary, even when it wasn't a livable wage. And I'll also be really frank and tell you, the receptionist that I mentioned who could not afford to see her dying mother actually worked for an organization that I ran. And I'm a little ashamed to admit that, but it's true. She worked for an organization that I ran. And I'll share with you, I personally paid for her emergency flight home. But that does not diminish the sense of shame that I feel about that situation, because no one should have to rely on the charitable generosity of others, and certainly not the charitable generosity of their executive director when it comes to housing, food, and family responsibilities. And that's one of the reasons why, in my own consulting practice, I have adopted a $20 per hour minimum wage. That is the floor, not the ceiling. My goal as an employer is to pay an equitable, fair wage that a person with two children could actually live on. And let me be frank, the nonprofit sector needs to adopt a wage floor that is significantly higher than the federal minimum wage. And our sector's wage floor needs to be higher, frankly, than the minimum wage of many progressive states like New York and California. But Even before, sector-wide, we adopt a much higher minimum wage, if you're an executive director or if you are a board member, I want you to be thinking about ways that you can create an equitable, livable wage floor at your organization. And there are many reasons why I think it is important that we all have these conversations within our organizations. And the first quite frankly, is a commitment to equity, diversity, and inclusion, because that commitment requires that we pay higher wages. Employment participation in the nonprofit sector is significantly higher among women. And so it's not surprising, given the fact there's a huge wage gap between men and women, that our sector has a similar wage gap. And it's also not surprising that white men are much more likely to hold the highest paying jobs in the sector. They are much more likely to be the chief executive, the chief financial officer, the chief program officer. And income inequalities are perpetuated across the sector. So if we are truly committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion, We also need to be starting to make sure that the wages of early career college graduates and professionals are a wage that people can actually live on. And let's also not forget all of the people working in our sector without college degrees who are doing the jobs of people who have college degrees. But guess what? Because they don't have a college degree, as executives, sometimes we say to ourselves, hey, We can pay them 20% less or 25% less because they don't have a degree. If they're doing the job, they should get the pay. And that pay, again, should be 
a wage that an actual person and family can live on. The second reason we all need to be having this conversation within our organizations is that being independently wealthy should not be a job requirement. I'll share with you, in preparing for this bonus break, I did a quick Google job search for case manager jobs in Metro Atlanta. The first thing that I saw, and of course already knew would be the case, is that most employers don't list a pay range. But the few postings that did list compensation were, quite frankly, absurdly low, even for the Metro Atlanta area. As an example, I found one case manager position in a suburban organization just outside of Atlanta, maybe 20 or so miles outside of Atlanta, that is only paying a range of $30,000 to $32,000 a year. And let me share with you, that organization wants a bachelor's degree. They want the person to work set hours. They want the person to be able to interact with donors and grant funders and families because it's a youth service case management position. And again, only paying $32,000 a year. Now, you probably already know if you've rented an apartment or a home anytime in the last decade or two, most landlords require that your income be three times the monthly rent. So I figured it out. And this case manager, who hypothetically is going to be making thirty dollars to $32,000 a year, would only qualify for an apartment renting at no more than $888 per month. I did another quick Google search, and 74% of all rental units in the area cost more than $1,000. So essentially what this organization is saying to its prospective employer employee is that we expect that you are going to accept this incredibly low pay, that you are going to live in housing that is the bottom 20% of the housing stock in the region And by the way, forgot to mention this, they also want you to have reliable transportation, which probably means car payments, insurance, gas, and maintenance. And here's the kicker, listeners. If the quote-unquote lucky candidate for this case manager position has two children, that person would actually qualify for food stamps. So regardless of whether someone has dependents, A professional with a passion for serving youth who accepted this job would have to get money from somewhere else, a parent, a trust fund, or a part-time job. And if, as executives, our business model doesn't pay workers enough to live, we need to question that business model. The third reason that I think we need to be talking about pay in the nonprofit sector is because talented professionals can make as much or more in less demanding jobs at for-profit companies. So that case manager position that I just mentioned, you know, top of the hiring range is $32,000 a year. Well, guess what? That's $15.38 per hour. In Metro Atlanta, do you know where else you can make $15 per hour? The Lidl grocery store. In fact, the Atlanta Journal and Constitution recently announced that Lidl offers a starting wage of $15 per hour. They don't require a bachelor's degree. And also, by the way, you won't be held legally responsible for the well-being of youth, and you get a more flexible schedule. So think about this for a minute. 
literally, someone could walk away from that case manager job, go to Lidl, and do just as well with a lot less stress, a lot less liability, and a lot more flexibility. If it's a nonprofit, we are competing against Lidl Grocery Store. For workers, we need to really be asking ourselves, how much are we valuing our workers? Shouldn't our workers be making more than someone who is working at a grocery store? So here's the other reason I think we should be absolutely talking about compensation and a fair wage in the nonprofit sector. As nonprofits, believe it or not, we have a lot of advantages that are given to us by the law. So, you know, structurally, these advantages include things like we don't pay federal and state income tax. And of course, you know that one, but there's even more advantages. We often don't pay things like property tax. And, you know, we often compete against for-profit companies in the same industries. We're talking social services, housing, health care, entertainment, etc., and we're not paying income tax, we are not paying property tax, and here's the best part. This is what can make us so competitive against for-profits. We also have the ability to eliminate or reduce the cost of capital by getting donations to pay for our big equipment and to pay for the real estate that we want to buy and use. But in getting these significant advantages, nonprofits should be agreeing to a social contract. They should be agreeing that they will not only seek good by serving their constituents, but they will also do good by being a great employer. And let me just be clear, this means valuing the work of staff and providing a great place to work and a livable wage. And the last reason that I think we should all be talking about wage in the nonprofit sector is, at this point, it kind of feels to me like we are on a race to the bottom. Employers usually view wages in relation to what is similar, both in the local job market and they also consider national standards. And so I've already mentioned to you this sense when I was an executive director, I would say, well, you know, this is about what a receptionist and an organization our size makes. So this is a quote unquote competitive wage, even if it's not a livable wage. Well, there's something else that we will often do. We will often also say to ourselves, well, gosh, minimum wage, isn't that like $7 and something an hour? And $15.38 per hour for this case manager position is more than twice the minimum wage, so it must be an okay wage. But we have to face the fact that Congress last increased the minimum wage a dozen years ago, and repeated congressional proposals to increase the minimum wage have either been defeated or never made it to a vote. And that's why I say we are racing to the bottom on wages. Inflation is eating away at minimum wages spending power, but yet we still view that as the floor, and we view twice that as being pretty good. So what can we do as nonprofit executives, as board members, and as leaders in the nonprofit sector? Well, obviously, we need to be asking ourselves how we create a more equitable system. 
If you are a nonprofit executive director or a board member, you can be a big part of creating that system. You can set a wage floor at your organization. And I want to give you one great example, and it comes out of Iowa. It's an organization called Every Step. And this organization made the strategic decision to set a wage floor of $15. Again, Iowa, we're not talking a high cost of living area like California or New York City. And so they literally went more than twice the federal minimum wage. And when they did this, it impacted 44 staff members, some of whom received as much as a $4 per hour increase. And here's kind of the cool part. Since implementing that $15 per hour wage floor, every step has received accolades both regionally and nationally, as being a great place to work and an employer of choice. So if you're thinking, hmm, maybe we should think about walking down the same road that every step went down. Maybe we should be thinking about a minimum wage. But how do we determine the wage floor? And how do we justify this additional cost to our funders? Well, I've got a few ideas for you. The first one is think about some of the indexes that are created both at the federal level and the state level that you as an organization could make some decisions around. And so as an example, you as an organization might say, we don't want anyone who's working for our organization to be paid so little that they would qualify for food stamps. Or you might say, we want everyone in our organization to be making enough money to at least be able to afford the average two-bedroom apartment in the communities that we serve. Or maybe you tie it to the federal poverty line. And here's the thing. All of those vary based on the state you're in, and some of them actually, like housing, vary based on the region that you're in. But let me take all three of those and give you a Georgia example. A family of four would qualify for food stamps if they made less than $34,000. So that's about $16.37 an hour. If as an organization in Georgia, you decide no one on your staff should be able to qualify for food stamps, you need to be thinking about a minimum wage for your lowest paid employee that is at least $16.50 an hour. Now, also in Metro Atlanta, the average two-bedroom apartment is about $1,100 a month. So when you do the math, you know, you realize that it's 30% of income should be spent on rent. That's HUD's general standard. And if as an organization, you say, we want anyone working for us to be able to afford a two-bedroom apartment in our community, that means you'd have to pay a little bit north of $21 an hour. And when it comes to the federal poverty line, I'm not such a fan of using that. And I'll share with you why. It's actually pretty low. In Georgia, family of four, again, needs to earn at least $26,500 to not be considered impoverished. And, you know, that's not really that high of an hourly rate. That's only about $12.75 an hour. But here's my question. As nonprofits, do we really want to be paying anything close to poverty wages? I certainly hope not. And so most organizations probably want the minimum wage to be at least, say, 150 percent 
of the poverty line, which, by the way, 150% of $12.75 an hour is about $19 an hour. So part of what you're seeing, obviously, is at some level, I'm kind of advocating, at least in the region that I'm in, a minimum wage of at least $20 an hour. Now, in New York and California, it is probably significantly more. In some lower cost of living areas, it might be slightly less, but probably not much less. Another factor that you and your board might be considering is a wage ratio. And A wage ratio is simply the ratio of the highest paid employee salary to the lowest paid employee. You know, we'll often hear this in terms of for-profit companies, where, for example, someone might say, oh, the CEO of this company makes 2,000 times more than the lowest paid person working at that company. In the nonprofit sector, we're probably not thinking multiples of thousands, but we are probably thinking multiples in the single digits. And it's probably based, frankly, on kind of the size of your budget and what your chief executive is currently making. But I would say that most organizations are probably looking at a wage ratio of three to one if they have a budget that's probably, say, a million dollars or less. And so as an example, if your chief executive is making $100,000 a year and your ratio is three to one, then no one in your organization should be making below $33,000. Now, let's say you're a five or $6 million organization and your chief executive makes $150,000 a year. Well, If you're a larger organization, maybe you want a four-to-one or a five-to-one ratio. And so, for example, if your chief executive is currently making $150,000 a year, a four-to-one ratio would mean your lowest paid employee could not make less than $37,500. Of course, even then, you might still look at a three-to-one ratio and say, hey, our chief executive makes $150,000 a year. We don't want anyone, not even the receptionist in our organization, to make less than $50,000 a year. Now, some of your board members will argue against pay ratios because the ceiling on executive pay could potentially hinder the recruitment of a great CEO, CFO, or chief development officer. And I have always been an advocate of competitive pay for nonprofit executives, but I am just as much an advocate of paying every single staff member a living wage. And if an organization realizes that they must now increase executive compensation to attract the talent they want, Chances are it has been long enough that they also have to factor in the cost of giving salary increases to their lowest paid team members as well. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Dolph, this is all well and good, but how am I going to sell this to my board and how am I going to sell it to my funders? Everything that we've just kind of talked about in this bonus break should be the conversations that you're having with your board and with your funders. But I believe how you close that deal is you actually include a livable wage in your annual budget and also in your grant proposals. So when you're drafting that annual budget or you're writing that grant proposal, make it clear that your organization values paying an equitable wage that a family can actually live on. Don't be shy about telling a funder, yeah, 
This position at other organizations might only pay $12 an hour, but we are unwilling to pay anyone a wage that cannot sustain a life of dignity. And that's why our minimum wage for any position is, and then you tell them what that minimum wage is, $17.50 an hour, $22 an hour, whatever it might be. And you also make it clear in that proposal and in your budget justification that the compensation that you pay not only impacts the individuals who are working for you and their ability to have a good life, but it also impacts your mission and your return on investment because your turnover will drop dramatically. And here's one more thing. When you say this to your funders, when you say this to your board, they're going to respect you. And chances are they're going to understand why you're advocating for a livable wage, and they're going to do everything they can to support that. So that's what I've been thinking about lately when it comes to nonprofit compensation and a livable wage. I really hope this has sparked some ideas for you about ways that your organization can make a full commitment to ensuring everybody who works for you can afford the basic necessities of life, a decent place to live, food on the table, health care, and more. That, listeners, is our bonus break for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And you know, I'm not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This episode is for informational purposes only and should not be relied on for tax, legal, and accounting advice. If you find yourself in need of that sort of specialized counsel and assistance, I suggest that you find a licensed, qualified professional and have a conversation with them.